For our first message today, we have a split sermon from Mr. Curtis Whiteley entitled Church Idols. Mr. Whiteley. Well, good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone here, as it always is. And as Reggie just pointed out, the title of my message today is Church Idols. And uh, I want to be kind of clear, this, this message that I developed today uh, was something that kind of inspired me because of an article that I ran across a few weeks ago, uh, kind of by accident. I wasn't looking for it, and it was a website called churchleaders.com, and it wasn't even me looking for this website. It was just kind of a, one of those you know, social media outlets, and someone attached something, or it was kind of like a recommended article. And so I hit and click saved on it, and I, I read it a little bit later, and the, the, the title of the article was Three Common Idols in Church, and it was written by an individual by the name of Eric Geiger, and this specific individual was, uh, I think he works for the Lifeway Christian Resources, many of you probably heard of that before, there's a lot of different materials that they, uh, that they publish and that they make, uh, different studies, and he's the Vice President of the Church Resource Division there at Lifeway Christian Resources. Uh, but in this article, it really, really hit home to me because as I started reading it and how this article was presented, and, you know, we've talked about what idolatry is in church, right? We've talked about, you know, about idols, about spiritual idols and trying to get, you know, the things out of our life that has become maybe a source of idolatry. But this particular article was interesting because it really played on what so many churches, so many organizations, I think, just as being humans, we deal with, or we have a tendency to, I guess, idol, uh, idolize. Now, the three common idols that this individual presented was, number one, the idol of the place, the idol, number two, the idol of the past, and number three, the idol of the programs. And as I was reading this article, I was looking to the analogies, and I was just thinking back about my experiences. I was thinking about experiences that I've read about and, and studying church history throughout, you know, both ancient and modern church history. And so one of the places that this individual talked about in opening up his article was none other than King Hezekiah. But not necessarily King Hezekiah completely, or, or just individually, or just, you know, only. But he also referred back to Moses. And there's one particular story that I want to take us to today about Moses that plays a key part in the role of King Hezekiah's doings a little bit later on in the history of Israel. So let's go to Ex or Numbers, rather, the 21st chapter. Numbers, the 21st chapter. We're going to pick it up in verses 4. Now, before I do this, I just want to get it into our minds, you know, what it is that we think about when we think of idols, Okay. Uh, anciently, we know uh, that idols was a big part of pagan societies. Oftentimes, in the ancient Near East, what you would have is, is you would have, whether it be a tribe, whether it be an actual whole or full-fledged civilization, uh, they would have what would be known as like the patron god or goddess. Ancient Greece, probably one of the most famous civilizations for most Western people to understand about their, you know, their pantheon of gods, they had a litany of gods. They had a litany of goddesses, especially like, for instance, Athena was the goddess of wisdom, and that was the patron goddess of Athens. And up on top of 
the highest spot in Athens was something known as the Acropolis. And that Acropolis was like their temple. It was like their shrine that was devoted to their goddess Athena. And so oftentimes, even though these individuals would understand that their idol wasn't necessarily literally the god or goddess or deity of the, whatever it was that they believed in, that idol on the ground was supposed to be the representation of the god that they believed in. Oftentimes, when you look in the Old Testament, sometimes you'll hear different terms used for the word idol. Sometimes it will be talked about in terms of a log. Well, that's kind of strange, because a log is just a piece of wood, right? Well, what do you make an idol out of? Well, you can make it out of stone, but oftentimes it would be made out of logs, some sort of, some sort of wood. But they're also referred to as being something that are worthless. They're lifeless. They're not real. And so when we think about idols and idolatry, there's really a lot of places we can go in the Bible. I mean, the Bible's full of idols. The Bible's full of examples of idolatry. But right here in Numbers, the 21st chapter, I just want to pick it up and read this story for a background of what we're going to talk about today. Verse 4 says, Then the people of Israel set out from Mount Hor, taking the road to the Red Sea, to go around the land of Edom. But the people grew impatient with the long journey. And they began to speak against God, and Moses, why haven't you brought us out of the land of Egypt to die here in the wilderness, they complained. There is nothing to eat here and nothing to drink, and we hate this horrible manna. Therefore, sorry, I just noticed that my translation that I have here in my notes is different from the King, New King James. I want to stick with the New King James and make it a little bit more familiar with what you're going to see on the board here. Verse 6, therefore, please come at once. Curse this people for me. Excuse me, I'm in verse 21. Or chapter 21. Alright, there we go. Verse 6 of chapter 21 of Numbers. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, that person lived. And so we see right here, there's this very unique story, and we know in our own culture today, I mean, we, you can look at an ambulance, you can look at some sort of medical symbol, and typically you see that serpent, that, that snake that's kind of around uh, that medical symbol, and it's a reference back to here of what's going on in Numbers, the 21st chapter. It's something that has become known, or a representation of healing. Now, we ask the question, what was the purpose of putting a bronze serpent on a staff? So when the people looked at it, that they would be healed. Number one, this serpent represented the curse that the Israelites were facing because of the rebelliousness. But second, it was a sign of faith. It was a sign of faith because when the people looked at the serpent, it was basically them having faith that this God that we worship, the God of Israel, the God of our fathers, the, you know, the covenant God that we have just came into a relationship with, that is where our faith is. He is our healer. And so it was actually an act of faith. And we see that Jesus 
in the third chapter, there's a connection to his life and what he has to say with this situation here in the book of uh, Numbers. In John 3, Jesus says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And we know that Jesus, he is our metaphorical serpent that we look to for our healing, whether it be our physical healing, whether it be our spiritual healing. We know that Jesus was raised up literally three times, if you think about it. First, he was raised up on the stake or on the cross as he sacrificed his life for us. Second, he was raised from the grave. And third, he was raised back to heaven to sit on the right hand of God. So what does this all have to do with idolatry? What does this all have to do with church idols? Well, let's go and talk about Hezekiah now. As I mentioned, I, I would in a minute ago. Let's go to Hez, uh, 2 Kings, the 18th chapter. We're going to pick it up in verse 1. Very interesting story because what we learn is that this story does not end right here in Numbers. This serpent doesn't just you know, serve a purpose for a time being and then all of a sudden you never hear about it again. We know the history of Israel. We know that Israel, because of their rebelliousness, fell in, and I won't say just because of Israel, because they're human, and we know that this is a theme, a part of human nature. We know that Israel fell into idolatry. They strayed from the covenant of God. They strayed from the commandments of God. Chapter 18, we pick it up. We hear a little story about Hezekiah and him coming to rule. It says in verse 1, Now it came to pass in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. Verse 4 tells us, He removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars cut down the wooden image and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. Now this is very interesting. Because obviously, in being so wrapped up in their idolatry, being wrapped up in, in not being obviously in tune with what God, uh, the, the covenant that God had given to to, to, to Judah and to Israel, obviously, in the beginning. Here you have a people group taking something that God has given them as a gift, as a symbol of something miraculous that God has provided His people, and they've made it into an object of worship. They've turned it into an idol. Now, if you just think about it, this must have been kind of controversial. I can see the people of Judah saying to themselves, okay, I understand, you know, all these graven images, you know, I can understand all these, you know, different idols, but the serpent? Moses made that. Well, what's he doing? I mean, how dare he take something that's for good and break it? And so, this brings us to the idea or the, the question that we have to ask. Can things that have been given to us as gifts from God become objects of idolatry? So let's look at that first point, that first part of idolatry. The idolatry of place, or the idol of place. 
For me, I like to interpret this as the idol of the church organization. Now, it's no secret that we come from a tradition in our past that I think that there's no doubt we have fallen trap, and I'm not saying we, but just the church of God in general has had a tendency to fall in this trap with the idol of place or the idol of church organization. The evidence for this, if you go out and you look at some of these different congregations, uh, or shall I say larger organizations, uh, oftentimes, not all of them, a lot of good Church of God organizations. By no means am I trying to put them down. But some of them, and a few years ago, I was perusing uh, some particular ones' websites. And when you look on their website, one of the first things you see is you start looking through the material, and they start doing this whole claim that they are the Philadelphia Church of God. And I'm not talking about the literal Philadelphia Church of God. We have over here about a 120 miles there in Edmond. But I'm just saying that they're the, they're the Philadelphia church from Revelation. They're the one true church. And anyone that's not a part of their organization, they're not a part of the body of Christ. And I've seen organizations even to a point where they, you know, you have the leader, you know, on the front page of the website and in the shadow is Herbert W. Armstrong. And it's just this idea of, you know, we are the church. Anyone outside of our organization is not doing the work of God, does not have the blessing of God. In fact, I, I've even heard stories, and unfortunately, I mean, this is just reality, that people who are sometimes a part of these organizations, they get so wrapped up in those ideas that anyone who are outsiders, I'm not talking about the world. I'm not talking about the general people that might go to churches and Protestant churches, but any other church of Godders, anyone that was formerly a part of the Worldwide Church of God or maybe another church of God organization, they will not associate with you. They will not have contact with you. They might, maybe it was a good friend. Maybe you were in a previous organization with them or previous church, and all of a sudden they're at this congregation, and they've cut ties to everyone that is in their past that maybe goes to a different church of God. And, of course, they look at us as being heretical and being rebellious against God's chosen leader, whatever particular leader that might be, and whatever particular organization that might be. This brought me to thinking about John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist came on the scene, and Matthew the third chapter, and I apologize, I didn't give this to Brian, but Matthew the third chapter, there's an interesting story about John the Baptist. And what he has to say with some religious leaders coming to check out what exactly he was doing. You know, John the Baptist, he wasn't from like the mainstream religious groups. He wasn't a Pharisee, he wasn't a Sadducee, he wasn't a Zealot, he wasn't any of that. He was just this rogue individual that went out and was starting to preach about the kingdom of God and preach about repentance. And in verse 7 of this, he was baptizing people, you know, the, you know in, in, baptizing them in repentance. But verse 7 of Matthew, the third chapter, he says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming where he was baptizing, he, sa he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warn you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. 
The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And I think there's a twofold implication that we can get in the response of these religious leaders coming to John the Baptist and what John the Baptist had to say. Number one, the attitude of, well, we have Abraham as our father. We're of Israel. We're of this tribe. Almost became a badge as if it was an automatic ticket into the messianic kingdom that all of them looked for and longed for. Secondly, when John the Baptist makes the further comment of saying, out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham, it's almost as if there's that idea, not only do we have an automatic ticket into the kingdom of God, and to this, of course, at this point in time, they were thinking of an earthly kingdom and that they were going to be a part of it, and they were going to be part of this, you know, sovereign new kingdom of Israel that's been reestablished. But by him saying, out of these stones, God can raise up children in Abraham, it's almost as if they had in the back of their mind, some of them, and we don't want to you know, generalize all Jews at this period of time, because we know there were a lot of righteous Jews, but some of the leaders sometimes maybe got a little power hungry. But it's almost as if they thought, God needs us. I mean, we're Israel. We're of this tribe. We're of that tribe. And you know what? All the prophecies, what it talks about, it talks about us. And so God needs us in order for all of these things to come to pass, which the scriptures have said. And John the Baptist was like, no, he doesn't. He can raise up these stones right here and replace you as the children of Abraham. An interesting story, which I think totally goes in line with the idea of the idol, idol of, of, of place. The idol of place. That sometimes, all over this world, all through history, that churches sometimes... Unfortunately, and even when they don't try to, have gotten into that mindset, okay? They're not part of us. Well, if you're not part of us, then I mean, how can I be really sure that you're part of the body of Christ? The second idol and the third idol I combine together. The idol of past and the programs. The reason I combine them is because I think that they kind of go together. I have to admit... I am a very, very sentimental person. There's no doubt about it. It's really hard for me to change. It's really hard for me to let things go. Uh, and this is a myriad of different things in my life. I can, you know, I, just the other day we were having a conversation. When I was 17 years old, my mother had to wait till I had made, either went out of town or I was not home for a long period of time because she wanted to get rid of this twin mattress and bed set that I had in my room that I had been sleeping on probably since I was like eight or nine. I mean, that was my bed. I threw a fit when I came home and this bed had been replaced. I wanted the same old pillow, I wanted the same old comfort, I wanted the same old mattress. I didn't want change. This is all I knew and this, is, this was very important to me. It, was very, you know, it kind of goes back to that sentimentalness of, of mine. You know, I like going to the same restaurants a lot of times. I order the same thing. I understand how hard it is sometimes to give things up in the past. And that's not what we're here to talk about. We're not here to talk about giving things up. We're not here to talk about how we need to move away from the past. We always have to remember the past. The past is very important. We, we don't deny our past or forget about it. We, we want to learn from the past, but we don't want to be stuck in the past. You know, human beings, we're a very, very interesting species. On one hand, we are so easily bored in life. You ever hear that? We're, we're a bored people. We're always bored. You know, there's not enough to do. You know, I, you know I'm I need a new hobby. 
But at the same time, we're so resistant to change. We're so routine-oriented, and some of that's really good. It kind of helps us be productive. We have a routine. We wake up in the morning. It kind of, you know, there's a lot of routines in our life that are really good. You know, it's a good routine to wake up in the morning and probably take a shower or clean yourself. It's probably a good thing to brush your teeth. Now, if you do it a different way, uh, that's neither here or there. I'm just giving you an example. There are things that are good about being a routine person and about, you know, being, I guess you would say, consistent at certain things. But can people be stuck in the past and in the programs in the church? Can we get to such a point where we've basically, we get so wrapped up in how we have done things in the past that we sometimes take the things that are supposed to be tools to help facilitate our worship to God, but instead we set them up as instruments of worship themselves. And the question I have to identify some of those things is the attitude. It's not the things. It's not the past. It's more or less how we view the things in the past. Now, very common thing in churches today, they call them worship wars. A lot of this has to do with generational differences. You know, the generation that is coming of age now is different from the generation of the 1950s, the 1960s. Age difference can play a key part in maybe your preferences. Music, clothing, you know, all different types of things. In church, we have these issues. Churches, not just the church of God, churches all over the place have these issues. They have to deal with these generational issues. In fact, one way that some churches have tried to deal with it, if you notice, you ever go down the street and you look at a church sign, oftentimes you'll see traditional worship service at 9, Contemporary worship service at 11. They change. They, they say, look, let's make everyone happy. Let's, you know, try to accommodate everyone. There's nothing wrong with that if that works for that particular church. But, what, you know, can we get so stuck in the past and the way we do things and, you know, these worship wars and whether it be the types of music we select, the way we choose to do evangelism and present our belief systems, and might I even add, I've seen church organizations and there's nothing wrong with this, if we have the right attitude, but they'll publish an article of some sort, and the article will like have to be in the same font of like a Plain Truth magazine article. Use some of the same catchy phrases. Nothing wrong with that, again, nothing wrong with that whatsoever, unless our attitude starts to become where that's the only way we can do it. How about what we must wear? Got to wear a suit to church. You don't wear a suit? Well, I mean, it's relative, right? Culturally relative. In the United States of America and in the West, a suit typically still is deemed probably, one, you, know, you know, outside of maybe a tuxedo, which would be interesting to see, but it's still very, very looked at upon as kind of the, you know, most dressed up way a person can be, especially for a male and a female. But, if a person is talking to you inside of a church, and I'm telling you this not because I'm trying to make a deal in this church, that's not an issue, but it is an issue in other churches. It is an issue in other churches. You must only use this version of the Bible. No other translation can you use. No other translation is actually the Word of God. The King James Version is a great translation. It is a historical classic. I use the New King James personally. But... If someone else chooses to use another translation, is that okay? Yes, it is okay. 
it's okay, not only because it's just a translation, but secondly, because we know that some other translations are also very good. There's no getting around it. it. They are. There are some bad translations, and we should, you know, maybe be helpful to, maybe, you know, if someone's using a really bad translation, maybe just let them know, hey, that might be a good translation to use for this or that. But, you know, just be careful with it if you're trying to base some doctrine on or things like that. The format of church services. Again, is it okay to have a set format? Of course it is. Is it good to have a set format? Yeah, it probably is. That's basically everyone kind of knows what to expect. But... The question is, do the traditions of our past, are they so important? Are they so important that they have become more than just something to facilitate our worship of God and become the actual object of our worship? What I am literally talking about to try to figure out if this is indeed the case in any particular congregation is if, if you feel that if one of these traditions, which oftentimes are really good traditions, there's nothing wrong with them, they don't need to be changed, it's more the attitude that needs to be changed. If you decide or someone decides that maybe they want to alter that tradition or change it a little bit, do you feel like somehow someone has just told you that you're trying to remove the 11th commandment from the Bible? That's when we get into the area of maybe we are holding on to these traditions too much to the point where we start, you know, the lines are being blurred about what is sanctioned scriptural commandment and what is just a good way, you know, a traditional way that we have facilitated our worship and it's become, of course, I believe in tradition because I think tradition can be very good, but it can also be something that can be dangerous if we do not continually adjust our attitude about those traditions. Let's go to Matthew, the ninth chapter. And again, I apologize, Brian, I added some of these late. Ninth chapter, I've talked about this before. This is about the parable of the wineskins. Jesus uh, was doing things like he was always doing in the ninth chapter. Some of John's disciples, in verse 9, verse 14 is where we're going to go. Some of John's disciples said, Then the disciples John came to him, that's Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, and the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And so why I wanted to point this article, or this, not this article, but this passage out, is because here's an example where, you know, there's that fine line where there's this traditions, the way we do things, it's like, this new guy over here, this, another rogue individual coming out, you know, it's not a part of the Pharisees or Sadducees or another sanctioned religious group. They're doing things differently, and why? Why is it the case? You know, it, we're humans. When people do things differently, and maybe the way we've always done things, we kind of have this, like, tendency, and I'm not saying this to you guys. I'm just saying I think it's a human nature thing. There's, like, this part of our brain that's like, that's, sus that's suspect. What's that, you know? Okay. No potluck on a holy day? What's the deal? Okay? So, does that mean that these traditions are not good traditions? Is fasting something that was good? Yes, of course. There's one day in the Bible that we are told that we need to fast. And the Bible also talks about how it is a way, a sign of mourning, a sign of trying to draw closer to God. But the problem is, is that when it becomes something sanctioned, where it's like, you know, you're really not at the elite righteous level, unless you do this, 
That's when it starts to become an issue, because where does it end? Where does it end? I want to conclude with just a quick quote from this uh, article I read by this individual by the name of Eric Geiger. He says, Hezekiah broke the snake because the people were burning incense to it. They were worshiping a bronze snake. Tools for transformation can become objects of worship. In our sinfulness, we can make an idol of just about anything. In our sinfulness, we tend to make idols of things that are important to us. Thus, a bronze snake that God used to bring healing, held by the leader of God's people during their liberation from slavery, became an object of worship. Now, I want to conclude by talking a little bit about, I think, something that's probably been on many of our minds in the past week. You know, just like many of you, uh, me growing up, I was baptized when I was... uh, 19 years old, almost 20, and uh, Ron Dart uh, played a significant role in my early years of studying the Bible. Uh, you know, it's very sad, obviously, for, for, for us and for his family, but it's very joyful for him that his, his race has ended. Uh, but I recently, you know, had a conversation, you know, with somebody, and I'm not going to name who this person was. And we were discussing church history and, you know, the church of God and how to move forward and how to, you know, continue carrying on the work of God, you know, in this new generation. And the comment that he made really resonated, resonated with me. And the comment that he made was, we must not forget Moses, but we must leave him on the mountain. Now, what does that mean? Well, metaphorically, it has nothing to do, we're not talking about law, you know, Moses, the law of Moses. Of course not, not at all. We're talking about thinking back at the children of Israel. You know, this was obviously an analogy that this person was giving. You know, as we know, right before the Israelites went into the promised land, Moses went up to the mountain to face the end of his race. He didn't enter the promised land with the children of Israel. Here you had this leader that had been leading these people out of Egypt, leading them around the wilderness. And basically, he kind of became this man that, you know, God spoke to the people through. And for the Israelites... We have to ask the question, what if they just would have stopped and be like, well, our leader's dead, Moses is dead, what do we do now? We're not going to press on anymore. They had to continue going forward. They had to continue to run the race and towards the goal. The race for the Israelites was not over. It was over for Moses. Do they forget Moses? Of course not. He became such an integral part of their history and even our history today as Christians. But... We cannot just dwell on the past, and Israel could not just dwell on the past. We cannot just assume that what worked for us in the past eras of the church of God will work for us in the future. Of course, what I'm talking about is the work of the church. Growing disciples. Taking the gospel message to the world. And when I'm thinking about Moses, I'm not thinking of trying to align any of the past individuals from our church history. You know, I'm not trying to associate them with Moses. But if you think about it, God did give the church of God leaders. And they did give the, you know, the, the church of God direction and how to do things. And we, you know, our church tradition did things a certain way and was very effective at doing those things in our past. But does that mean that in order to move forward... And to be effective, we have to recreate what was in the past. Or do we have to recognize that, you know, maybe things are different. You know, there's a a difference between form and function. You know, we as a church of God function always the same way. We uh, we, We always want to, we always have the same goal. We're trying to preach the gospel message to the world. We're trying to grow disciples. 
we're trying to reach people and teach them about, you know, God's magnificent plan, about how Sabbath hasn't been done away, about how the holy days, they're, they're so Christ-centered, and they point towards, you know, the salvation of all mankind in this world, and how there's a kingdom coming, it's going to be set up, and all the righteousness of God is going to flow to this world because the king who is going to be on this world stage will finally have a righteous king. None of that ever changes. But the way that we reach people, the methods and means and, and, and different techniques that we use to try to get that message out to people might have to be different than it was 40 years ago or 50 years ago. And sometimes I think we can get so wrapped up in the idea that, you know, what worked back then 40, 50 years ago, and that's the way they did it. You know, that's the type of, that's the way they had church. That's the way they basically, you know, you had a couple guys do all the work. They had some magazines, they had a radio program. Those were all really good and a really cool part of the history of the Church of God. And uh, for a lot of people, a very, very uh, sentimental part of their life, a very, very important part of their life. It, it impacted people, you know, who they became as individuals. But moving forward, do we not sometimes have to look outside the box and say, you know what, what is this generation, what is the audience that we have today in 2016? in 2017, in 2025, in 2030. What is our audience? Who are our audience? How does this audience, how do people in the 21st century, how, do they, how are they reached? You know, what is it that resonates, what styles resonate with them? So, in conclusion, those are just some things I want us to think about. It's more about attitude than about anything. The traditions that we have in the Church of God, I think, by and large, are very good. And tradition is very important for congregations. Tradition is very important to, to never forget. We also have to remember, attitude-wise, that sometimes we can, you know, mistake traditions for actual commandments and edicts from the Bible.